Jay, I've made a decision. Oh? I have decided that Leech is the best Morlock. Gunning hard for the Moppet vote, I see. He's such a good kid! Yeah, he really is. And he and Artie Maddox have an exceptionally wholesome friendship. Oh man, they really do. Have they ever gotten to spend much time with other kids? I know there was that time with the Exterminators, but that was decades ago. Well, let's see. Um, I know they were with Generation X for a bit, and then later on, when Franklin Richards was at the Massachusetts Xavier School... Wait, Franklin Richards went to the Xavier School? Only for a little while. His parents were dead at the time, and his grandfather had to put him somewhere. You can't drag a kid around on conquests. Conquests? Oh yeah, see, Franklin's dad is Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic. Right. And Reed's dad is... A foxy grandpa? King the Conqueror. WHAT?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 311 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Wasn't 311 a band from when we were teenagers? Does that ring a bell? It does not. Oh, I think they were. Um, they were out around the same time as Eve 6, another band of that era with a number in their name, and I mainly remember Eve 6 because they were named after a concept from an X-Files episode about these Adam and Eve clones who were created by, like, I don't know, evil scientists or something. I think it is remarkably bold of you to assume that I am familiar with any bands who were popular during our teen years. That's... that's true. We mainly listened to a lot of folk rock and obscure gothy shit. Well, I mean, I feel like you were at least marginally plugged in because you knew what was going on in the metal community, but I was... I was really, really not at all. Okay, let's be real. If by metal community you mean Metallica and Megadeth and that's about it, then sure. But, um, my horizons desperately needed to be expanded back then. Okay, look, that still seemed like a wider range than mine. I suppose so. Anyway, all of that very much aside, we are a podcast about X-Men, not about Megadeth. That would be a weird topic for a podcast. I don't know that you could get 311 episodes out of it. Um, so should we talk about some X-Men today? I don't know, I'm kind of tired. Yeah, I'm tired too, but time travel and clones wait for no man or woman. I mean, by definition, they kind of do. I guess that's true. When you can travel through time, you have all the time in the world. Except when you don't, due to weird plot contrivances. It's complicated. <laughs> the Jane Miles explain the X-Men story. Don't forget to wind your watch. <laughs> yes. Oh man, so uh you saw Bill and Ted 3, right? Oh. You haven't seen it yet? Oh no, Jane. I haven't. I haven't. I'm sorry. I mean, opinions I'm sure vary, but I loved it so much, and I think you will too. No, I wanna see it. I my my not having seen it is not through lack of interest, it's just through having been exhausted and overwhelmed and and ending up doing things like going to sleep. That's entirely reasonable, yeah. Oh, speaking of movies, I realized something. You remember how we did the Hawk Talk episode last week about autumn stuff, and, and that included talking about horror and X-Men overlapping with horror? I do indeed! I realized after we recorded it that we entirely forgot the existence of the New Mutants movie. I feel good about that. I don't know how to feel about it, because I still haven't seen it, because you, you kind of can't, or at least Me I neither, can't. but I feel like that's a victory. I mean, I, I, I don't know, I've, I've, I've read some reviews, and I... I feel like just pretend. I, I feel like I might end up taking the same approach to it that I took toward the Ender's Game movie and the um, 
the Dark is Rising movie and just completely repress its existence. Oh, I can't do that. I got to see my favorite teenagers on screen. Even if it's a terrible movie, I'm just so excited about the opportunity to see a new Mutants movie. Well, it's an academic question for the moment anyway. Very, very true. Uh, Speaking of questions, a question one could ask is whether we are still dividing our X-Men and Uncanny X-Men episodes into, you know, different episodes. And uh, at this point, officially, as of this very episode, we're not. As of about mid-1995, X-Men and Uncanny X-Men were effectively the same comic. Like, plot lines that would happen in one one month would be picked up in the next issue of the other that would come out. It didn't exactly go back and forth, but they were pretty much happening simultaneously and sharing many of the same plot threads. Man, I hate that. It's confusing and weird. Like, I know some other books have done that. I know Spider-Man's done that when there were a bunch of Spider-Man books, which I guess there still are. I'm pretty sure Batman has. I just feel like it's such poor form. If you're going to make it one book, make it one book. Switch artists if you have to, but make it one book. Like, it, the idea that, that people should have to subscribe to two titles and know to subscribe to two titles to get the whole story as an ongoing thing, not just for events and not just for crossovers, annoys the hell out of me. It makes things unnecessarily difficult and complicated, and if there's anything we've learned over 310 prior episodes of this podcast, it's that the X-Men are really complicated enough without that. You are not wrong. But that said, I'm glad we at least know that we need to treat these two books as basically being one book, because at least that way it'll make a little more sense than it otherwise would. Except when it doesn't. Except when it doesn't. So, today we are going to be talking about just two issues, but they're both very long issues, I think exactly double-sized. We have X-Men Annual 1995, that is adjectiveless X-Men, and then we have Uncanny X-Men number 325, which, by virtue of being a multiple of 25, and also an anniversary issue, we'll get to that later, is itself double-sized. Hey, lots of, lots of issues here. Um... We've all got lots of issues. We do. We, I think that's, that's a state universal to comics readers, really, at this point. We file them into our long boxes and into the dark recesses of our brains. All right, so we're going to start with, uh, with X-Men Annual 1995. And with its, with its main story, which is titled A Sinister Heart. Guess who that's about? But before we jump in, you may have noticed that 1995 is a very long number for an annual that actually only had a few prior issues. No, no, Miles, this is the 1,995th annual of this title. I think we skipped some comics. Uh, But no, this year was the year that Marvel decided to stop numbering their annuals, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, etc., and to just start putting the year at the end of them, which... On the one hand, it offends my sensibilities, but on the other hand, it does make it a lot easier to know where to slot them in if you're doing a read-through of a comic. Honestly, for annuals, I think that makes way more sense than numbering them. Yeah, it's not so bad. Now, we also have lost some annuals. In 1995, we had Cable and X-Force. Yes, they shared an annual. We had Wolverine, Adjectiveless X-Men, Uncanny X-Men, and Generation X. But Excalibur and X-Factor no longer have annuals. Aww. Yeah, especially because, like, the old Excalibur annuals back when they were Excalibur Special Editions, a lot of those were great. Right? Those were really fun. I depended on those for levity among among the, you know, Adam X the Extremes. Although the same year that Adam X the Extreme came out in an annual, so did Chaos with a K in the Excalibur annual, and I did love him. Exactly! That's my point. Well, anyway, let's actually talk about the comic. So, who made this book? 
This story was written by J.M. DeMattis and Ralph Macchio, penciled by Terry Dodson and John Paul Leon, inked by John Holdridge and Sean Martinborough, and colored by Mike Thomas, with letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And this story is... It's weird, because, like, it doesn't matter, but I kind of loved it anyway. Oh, I, I love parts of it. So... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tangent briefly, and today I, I spent a while talking to college classes about the X-Men and um, uh, you know, critical readings of superhero comics. And in the second one I was in, I was, I was you know, talking about X-Men, and I was giving this fairly serious talk about the mutant metaphor and about the X-Men in cultural context. And then I'm not sure how I got there, but I had to explain Sauron. Something came up such that I had to explain Sauron. So I'm like, you know, talking about these, these serious yeah, allegorical versus literal representation. So Sauron is, is a, a man who turns into a pterosaur in tiny jorts who eats people's minds. After hypnotizing them. After hypnotizing No, he doesn't eat their minds. He eats their, he eats their mutant energy after hypnotizing them. And I feel like that specific feeling is the same feeling I get when I talk about this story, uh, which is about Cable's shitty kid kidnapping Jean Grey and an aging former radio star to defeat Mr. Sinister by proving that Sinister is capable of feeling love. I feel like if you throw in some butt-pounding, that could be a great Chuck Tingle title. I feel like 90s X-Men has a really generally Chuck Tingle feel to it. You know, you're, you're not wrong. Although, actually, that's not fair, because Chuck Tingle generally actually has a fair amount of causality and, like, coherent plot structure in his books. They're really weird. But, you know, stuff happens in, in sequence, and we get some degree of explanation, even when it's it's from someone who was living in their own butt and, and um, engaging in multi-layer investments there. Like you do. I, I also want to take this moment to say that even in these shitty times, uh, Chuck Tingle remains one of the few forces for unmitigated good in the universe, and if you're not following him on Twitter, I highly recommend it. Like, seriously, yes, he writes weird porn, really weird porn, but his heart is so pure. Okay, but it's also really wholesome weird porn. And That's it's true. really it's really socially conscious weird porn and he's really really responsive to readers asking for wider representation. He handles that stuff really conscientiously and he's generally he's a, like he's he's there there's the Chuck Tingle who is the performance, there's the Chuck Tingle who's the real person behind that. And either way, he gives the impression of being extremely conscientious and extremely open in how he approaches his work in ways that I think, honestly, the superhero world could learn from. We should all be buckaroos who are so true. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Like, I'm not saying this just to be funny and smartass. I genuinely, deeply appreciate Chuck Tingle as a voice in literature. Legit. Uh, he didn't write this comic, alas, but, um... Oh, that would have been great. I would read that comic. Well, what is this version of the comic that does not involve any, uh, at least on-panel butt-pounding? What's going on in it? Well, so so the woman in question, the aging for former radio star, is a woman named Faye Livingston. And this is a woman whom Mr. Sinister seduced in the 1920s when she was a Hollywood radio comedian, and he was basically sexy Hollywood Dracula. He had a mansion in the Hollywood Hills, and he went around in capes, like... Just, just being mysterious and throwing wild parties. And he and Faye got together, and she thought it was love at first sight, and he insisted that it was because she had real good DNA. I'm not, I'm not making this up. Like, that was his reason. And um, 
then she inevitably walked in on him being Mr. Sinister, and he imprisoned her and experimented on her and manipulated her for years, and she finally escaped or he let her go. I don't remember which. It did not make enough impression on me. After which she ended up uh, living in a nursing home for the rest of her days, but he still came to visit her semi-regularly, at least annually, until... Tyler, who is Cable's shitty kid from the future, grown up, kidnapped her. So Tyler, Tyler kidnaps Faye and, and uses some kind of, of fancy mutant nonsense to, to effectively de-age her so she looks briefly the way she did when, when she and Sinister first got together. She is a trap for Sinister, but for this trap to be completed, Tyler also has to snag Jean Grey which he does eventually, and and his goal here, his entire goal is to get Jean to connect Faye and Sinister's minds so that Sinister will have to acknowledge that he's capable of feeling love. Okay, before we get to how all that resolves, a few things. This issue is actually one of the very first glimpses we get of Sinister in the far-ish past, thus proving that he's older than he looks. We're going to get a lot more information on that in the Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix miniseries, which, interestingly enough, uh, actually has the same artist as the flashback scenes in this story. But most importantly, in those flashback scenes, I really appreciate that while he's being Hollywood sexy Dracula, he still has that goddamn diamond on his forehead. He is not subtle at all. Like, you would think he would want to just blend into history, like, yes, as a rich playboy or whatever, but uh, not with a freaking diamond on his forehead. I was thinking about this this and Sinister in Hollywood, and I feel extremely confident that if he had been doing this 40 years later, he would unquestionably have been a regular in the movies of Edward D. Wood Jr. Oh, man. That would have been amazing, and I think you're totally right. Yeah, yeah. Like, he would he would definitely murder Creswell at some point, but that's, that's a whole other thing. Mm, yeah, well, you know, no precog rule in Krakoa these days, so there's that. But the other thing, aside from sexy Dracula Hollywood Mr. Sinister with a diamond on his forehead and a newly opened chapter in his own history, Jay, you mentioned Cable's shitty son, Tyler, who's the one responsible for this de-aging, kidnapping, telepathically connecting plot to go up against Sinister. And we've actually talked very little about Tyler because he's a character that's appeared almost exclusively in... Cable's miniseries and ongoing series. And while we have covered the miniseries, we've barely touched the ongoing. Oh, God. Oh, Tyler. Um, Tyler, Tyler, I feel bad for Tyler because everyone always forgets he exists, first of all. The thing is, he's not that interesting. No, no, he's he's not only not that interesting, he's just not interesting. Well, his deal, so he is Tyler Dayspring. He's the son of Cable and Cable's dead wife, Aaliyah, or Alia, I'm not sure how you're supposed to say it, who also went by Jen Scott, or maybe Jean Scott? Anyway, they were married in the future, in, like, you know, the future that Cable was sent to as a baby, and that's where they had Tyler. Tyler was abducted by Strife, who Cable and his group were warring with, and Tyler was brainwashed. Cable eventually ended up having to shoot Tyler to save a teammate that Strife and Tyler were attacking. We saw a little bit about that in the Cable Blood and Metal miniseries. In which we also confirmed Cable's lifetime love of enormous sandwiches. Yes, he does love a big sandwich. I love a big sandwich, too. Maybe I'll have a big sandwich after this episode. I'm kind of hungry. I ran this morning. Anyway, Tyler went back to the present day to ensure Apocalypse's rise, because it's complicated. He disguised himself as a man named Mr. Tolliver, who you may remember being mentioned and ambiguously killed in early X-Force. Turned out that was just him faking his own death. 
Tyler got in a fight with Cable and escaped, and more recently he renamed himself Genesis, having decided to cut all ties, including his name, with Cable, declared himself heir to Apocalypse, who at the moment, thanks to Executioner's song, is dead, and he then recruited Apocalypse's henchmen the Dark Riders by being very intimidating and blonde. What you need to remember about Tyler is that he was basically raised by Strife. He is the second generation of Strife. Like, if you think Strife's parents didn't understand him, then boy, have you not met Tyler Dayspring, a.k.a. Genesis. So, anyway, all that happens and it's nonsense, and I, I don't really care very much about that part. What I care about a lot is that this is also a Hank and Jean friendship story, and this is one of my favorite friendships in X-Men. Now, it starts with Hank and Jean hanging out in the cabin that Hank bought so that as a student, so that he and Bobby could take girls there. Um, which strikes me as a very optimistic thing for Teenage Hank to have done, and also something that inevitably ended up with he and he and Bobby like playing D&D at the cabin alone. Do Hank and Bobby from the Silver Age remind you a lot of Bill and Ted, speaking of Bill and Ted? Oh, they really, really do, yeah. I mean, yes, Hank is brilliant, and Bobby is, well, he's not Bill and Ted, but at the same time, there's just that understanding that, no, no, our friendship is kind of what matters. We can have girlfriends, but we have to meet them at the same place and bring them to the same cabin because this is just how things are done. Oh, and they would unquestionably name their children after each other. <laughs> they totally would! I don't know if either of them would be a very responsible parent, though. I don't think they should have kids. Yeah, I... I... I, you know, I, I think, you know, maybe people change over time, but I, I would worry. Yeah, yeah. Although I guess since he came out, Bobby's been less irresponsible. Hank probably should never be responsible for anyone extremely vulnerable, just in general. Or the time stream, hypothetically. Hank just shouldn't be responsible for anything. <laughs> Well, nonetheless, Beast may have terrible judgment, especially as the Marvel Universe continues, but here he is charming. And I gotta say, J.M. DeMattis writes a great, great Beast. Like, his dialogue is very much the Bouncing Blue Beast era of Beast, where he uses $20 wor words while just having fun with his own diction and eloquence, even just talking to himself and just being a big furry goof, and I really enjoy that. Yeah, and this is a Hank who's frustrated and a bit self-pitying, but ultimately still very grounded in in that identity and yeah this is this this feels like a different direction that hank could have gone long term with really with the legacy virus as kind of a split point i agree yeah and part of me wonders if part of the reason he went the direction he did go is because during this time iceman was gone like not for a super long time but during a pretty critical time iceman is off helping rogue after she absorbed a bunch of gambit's memories and freaked out Helping is kind of a relative term here. Babysitting? Chaperoning? Yeah, I, I had it down as rogue-sitting in here, but, um, yeah, and this is this was originally going to be an original five hang-up, but obviously Bobby's gone. It was supposed to be four of them, and Scott and Scott and Warren are running a little bit late. And, and Hank is worried that he, by, by just inviting the batch of them, he's leaving out the new kids, but Jean disagrees. No matter how many bonds we forge with Storm or Gambit or Jubilee... We five were the original X-Men, back when it was all so much simpler. It reminds me of that time toward the end of Schism where Iceman reminded Cyclops that they were the Beatles, they were the originals. I love that bit. Oh god, same. I think it's just a brilliant bit of writing and a really, really good Bobby scene in particular. 
Mm-hmm. Anyway. Hank is a character who tends to self-isolate, recognize it, and then pontificate about it without really addressing it, which I appreciate and also identify with maybe a little too much. <laughs> Fair. And he also gets the last word of the story, which I really, really like, or at least of the sinister part of the story before it, it goes on. After Sinister ultimately at least pretends to reject the love that he had for Faye Livingston. As trite as it sounds, Jeannie, our true strength doesn't come from our mutant abilities, but from love. I mean, you're not wrong. If nothing else, you can canonically channel love into Cyclops' eyeballs and shoot them at a giant robot thumb. You can also use the power of Gainus to defeat Nazis. Oh yeah, speaking of Excalibur Special Editions. Right? But, I mean, that also reminds me of the, you know, the, the, the parts in the Dark Phoenix saga, where the, 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 you know, the Gene you are love stuff. And also just a lot of what brings me back to the X-Men, because more than anything else, I think the thing it does better than any other comic is friendship, is camaraderie, is love. Exactly, yeah. Like, these are characters who, either by necessity or by choice, have created family they have found family and that's not just a substitute for you know oh my parents aren't great so i'm gonna try to hang out with people and maybe feel something like no this is legitimate family in every way that matters yeah they've definitely all been cloned in weird combinations but also and and pursuant of family and and that family are people who you whom you love with their eccentricities scott and warren show up and and Warren and Hank head off on a flimsy excuse, clearly to give Gene and Scott time for some marital hanky-panky. And Scott's first in instinct is that left alone in this, this, this cabin, which is specifically the hookup cabin, um, what they should probably do is clean it. Which, to be fair, since it was mostly occupied by teenage Hank and Bobby, might not be a bad instinct. There is that. There is that. If nothing else, there's probably fur everywhere. Actually, wait, no. Hank wasn't blue yet. But he was still hairy. And that brings us to the second story in X-Men Annual 1995, Words. Written by Scott Lobdell with Matt Idelson, penciled by Ramon Bernardo, inked by P. Craig Russell. Hey, P. Craig Russell. Colored by Mike Rockwitz, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. I want to start by making fun of how Brian Braddock is drawn in this issue, because... Oh man, is that something that is taking place on the page? Perhaps you could describe for our listeners what you're looking at. Have you ever seen the cover of a romance novel? I have. Imagine that someone like took one of those and was like, yeah, that's what men look like, and that's how they pose, and that's what their hair does, but then for the face, just like trace the real basic lines of it. I'm Now I'm just imagining a bunch of romance novel covers, and all the big burly dudes with long hair look the same, except that they're wearing Britannic's, like, red onesie costume. Which he does not wear in this story. That's because, you know, it was he needed to wash it after wearing it on so many romance novel covers. Anyway, his hair is very long. It's, it's very, very long. I'm not sure it's ever this long anywhere else. I mean, I'm a noted appreciator of long hair on men. I'm not going to complain. Yeah, anyway, um, somehow also being Britannic has given him more patience, and he is taking a break from weird adventures to read a letter from his sister Betsy, which he bafflingly expects to ground him in normalcy. Brian, have you met your sister? 
she's a purple ninja lady in a different body or maybe a transformed body. It's confusing, and she has butterfly psychic stuff, and she turns that psychic stuff into the focus totality for psychic might, which is a knife that she stabs into your face. Also, she is writing here with the grave news that she seems to be in love with none other than Warren Kenneth Worthington III, although she does have the good judgment to leave the Kenneth out of the name. I actually really appreciate Betsy's tone in this letter, like the sort of mock seriousness of the, oh no, I'm afraid, it seems to be love. Like, that's the thing, everyone forgets that about Betsy because she got turned into a sexy ninja and everybody focused on the sexy ninja stuff, but she has this very arch sense of humor that I appreciate. Oh yeah, and, and that really comes out in, in this issue and in this letter, because she's very aware that she basically spent her life in upper-class British boarding schools. She also appears to have, have gained some sense of propriety from her fellow X-Men, because she does include in this letter to her brother a photo booth strip of photos of herself and Warren making out, which is a little weird, but still not quite as weird as the photo that Scott and Madeline Pryor sent Professor Xavier from their honeymoon. Oh, the one where they were lying in bed and there was, like, the big heart headboard and you have to wonder who actually took that picture and why would you send that to your boss dad? I mean, I think we established that it would, must have been sinister. That's probably true. But I want to point out, like, okay, so clearly Psylocke and Archangel are a couple at this point. That's been built up for a while. Do you remember, Jay, what their first date was? Oh, yes. It involved being kidnapped by Shinobi Shaw. Well, he didn't kidnap them. He invited them to the Hellfire Club and tried to recruit them, and it ended up, like, they yelled at him and beat him up and then left. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It meant, it, it involved them being briefly, forcibly prevented from leaving by Shinobi Shaw. Right. But my point is, that was the moment that where they were like, you know, we were kind of hot for each other, but maybe let's see where this goes. Forged in the fires of dealing with Shinobi Shaw's confusion about sex was born love. This is exactly like the time I once hooked up with someone in the middle of a Sailor Moon marathon. Just because it was preferable to the Sailor Moon marathon, or? It was a not entirely voluntary Sailor Moon marathon. Was Shinobi Shaw hosting? No. That's probably for the best. I have, I have since come to appreciate Sailor Moon, I, I will say to forestall the, the flood of angry emails that people are already starting to type. Sailor Moon is in fact excellent. I agree though, like that's not how to get somebody into an anime. This happened to me with Dragon Ball Z, you don't just sit somebody down and be like, okay, now we're gonna watch six hours straight of this thing. Well, and we're staying in a place, and I am the only one with a driver's license, not me, the person who wanted to watch Sailor Moon, was the only one with a car and a driver's license, so there really wasn't another option. Like, it, it was, it was, it was, I'm not gonna say it was a hostage situation, but like, I can joke about it having been a hostage situation, it was, you know, close enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Anyway, what's up with Betsy and Warren and their new love? Well, they've been watching a lot of Sailor Moon. <laughs> and, no, seriously, Sailor Moon is amazing, and... I feel like it could I could have been sold on it immediately if someone had told me it's actually a genre switch. What you think is a cute high school magical girl story is actually a complicated ghost story. And I would have been like, oh, cool. With like magical Straight girl gangs. Yeah. Yeah. No, Sailor Moon is actually really good. And the manga is also marvelous. So, yeah, that's my that that is my stance on the whole Sailor Moon issue. Anyway, back to Warren and Betsy. Betsy is inexperienced in romance apparently, or at least claiming to be in this letter to her brother. Um, and specifically with the phenomenon of sexual tension, or at least describing it. I, 
I can't quite navigate this because we know she's been in sexual and romantic relationships before. Yeah, she was with that one dude from the RCX in the Captain Britain series way back when, if nothing else. And she was also a spy, and I assume, from what I've seen, that spies get laid all the time. Possibly? Possibly. Hmm. Anyway, Warren and Betsy are past their initial honeymoon phase, and they're recognizing that they both still have a lot of issues that mutuality doesn't necessarily solve. And I appreciate that, you know, they acknowledge, okay, it's our shared trauma, it's the fact that our, our bodies were, you know, invaded and corrupted by, respectively, the hand-slash-spiral and apocalypse that brought us together, but, like, is there something more than that and just raw chemistry? And that's a valid question, and I really appreciate that they're actually talking about it very directly. There's also a pretty marvelous bit of heavy-handed riffing on Marvel time as Psylocke asks... Didn't Scott and Jean find true happiness? Angel replies. Ha! Huh. Only after putting up with the equivalent of 30 years worth of obstacles and misery. Heck, Jean's apparent death was worth 10 years alone. So I looked it up, and between Uncanny X-Men number 1 and Adjectiveless X-Men number 30, where Scott and Jean got married, uh, that was 28 years, so yeah, pretty close to 30 years. But from Uncanny X-Men number 137 to Fantastic Four number 286, which was where it became clear that Jean was actually still alive after the, after the Dark Phoenix saga, that was only 5.5 years. That wasn't 10 years. Clearly he's rounding up. Rounding way up. Kenneth. Now... These two, having gotten their sense of how relationships work from X-Men comics, which is not a great idea, are really concerned that if they don't terminally overthink it, they're just diving straight into a relationship and they'll end up just like Rogue and Gambit. I mean, if so, we're very confused about various mutant powers. I... I can only imagine that their real concern is that they'll suddenly bust out in wild phonetic accents. That is a real risk in Marvel Comics. Anyway, then they make out wall flying, which is, I guess, kind of sometimes maybe how hawks do it? Pretty much. Pretty much. I do really like Betsy's line at the end of the letter, though. Whether our connection should be for but a fortnight or forever. That seems really healthy. Like... They're not directly comparing themselves to Scott and Jean, the one true couple, who end up not being permanent. Well, I guess they get back together. Anyway, point being, I like that Betsy is just taking the relationship as it is. Their lives are very, very confusing, but they clearly have something beyond pure attraction and incredibly complicated traumatic backstories. So, why the hell not? And Brian is generally cool with that. Before we move on to Uncanny X-Men number 325, which itself has a great deal of background it draws from, perhaps we can discuss what happened. Previously, on X-Men. So, we all know that mutants are hated and feared by the world around them, but the ones who can't pass as human have a much, much worse go of it, and those include the Morlocks. It's enough to make you want to shun the surface world, start your own civilization in the sewers under New York, and name yourself after characters from an HGL story. It's a very specific hypothetical. It's true. Everything was going okay for the Morlocks until their leader Callisto decided to reenact Barbarella Queen of the Galaxy and kidnap a sexy angel. The angel in question, of course, happened to be Warren Kenneth Worthington III, who neither makes nor is love, so his X-Men allies ventured underground to rescue him. Leading to the historically pacifist Storm to defeat Callisto in a ritualistic Morlock duel to the death, thus claiming leadership of the Morlocks for herself. Yeah, she straight up stabbed Callisto through the heart. It was pretty metal. Eh, Callisto was fine. They had a sewer wizard. 
Years later, Mr. Sinister sent his team of marauders underground to slaughter as many Morlocks as possible. Uncool, dude. Unfortunately, the marauders were very good at this, and most of the Morlocks were killed, despite their absentee leader Storm's best efforts. Which, to be generous, fell into the general category of too little too late. Yeah, yeah, the X-Men did not fare well in that crossover. Well, and Storm really dropped the ball when it came to Morlock leadership. Mm-hmm. But wait, it gets worse for the Morlocks. Man. Years after that, Colossus's very powerful and very troubled brother, Mikhail... That jerk. ...decided that taking over the Morlocks and then using his ambiguous mutant powers to kill himself and all of them was a great plan. It was not. This was only one of the almost comically numerous family tragedies that led Colossus to leave the X-Men to join their foe Magneto in space. You ever read Jude the Obscure? It was kind of like that, although actually less overblown. That didn't go well either, as Magneto had his brain erased in a fight with the X-Men, leaving his awful Lieutenant Exodus to take over his followers. That didn't go well either. Just like Storm was unable to protect her Morlocks from a group of horrible murderers, Exodus was unable to protect his followers from an angry space skeleton. I question the accuracy of this analogy. Well, okay, not just like it, but, but still. The X-Men recently found out that Mikhail apparently didn't kill the remaining Morlocks despite his best efforts, but sent them to another dimension where time flows faster. Now the younger surviving Morlocks, all grown up, have come back to Earth as the murderous Gene Nation. That's Gene with a G, not Gene with a J. Gene Nation's plan is to murder lots and lots of humans. I tell you, man, freaking millennials killing the humans being alive industry. And they don't even eat at Applebee's. <sighs> I tell ya. What if instead of being relegated to the sewers, the Morlocks had just lurked at Applebee's? They would eat thousands and thousands of calories every day without realizing it. That can't be healthy either. Maybe, but like, imagine how different their civilization would have ended up. In fact, in general, imagine a civilization that's just built from scratch in abandoned Applebee's restaurants. There would be so much flair. That brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 325, Generation of Evil. Written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Joe Matarera, inked by Townsend and Ryan, colored by Steve Bucolato and Electric Crayon, lettered by Richard Starkings, and Comicraft. And this issue has a not just gatefold cover, but a double gatefold cover. That is four covers worth of cover, and the logo is foil, and it's got double pages, and it costs more. And part of that is because, like we mentioned earlier, this is an issue that ends with a multiple of 25. Part of it is also that this was around the 20th anniversary of when Giant Size X-Men number one came out. Did you feel kind of cheated by the double gatefold cover? Like, I don't feel like it really lived up to its potential. Uh, this one, yes, it's just basically one simple picture kind of stretched out, but the concept of double gatefold covers, I love. That full image from X-Men Volume 2, number one, is oh, freaking yeah. cool. Yeah, that's rad. That is a good use of a gatefold. This is not. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, Joe Mad Art is fun, but eh, there's not a lot to it. No, this is the novelty for the sake of the novelty. It doesn't, it's not a more interesting cover. It's not a better cover. It's just like, yup, it got some folds in it. Well, anyway, this issue is double-sized to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Giant Size. Adjectiveless X-Men number 45, which we'll be covering soon, also was. And it occurs to me, we just got a tribute issue of Giant Size X-Men number 1 for its 35th anniversary, where every page was redrawn by a different artist. Have you had a chance to check that out yet? I have not. 
It's actually pretty cool. Uh, Gurihiru, I may be mispronouncing that, uh, does a page that is completely in a different style than all of the other artists, but I love their style, and so all of a sudden it's just Giant Size X-Men number one basically going into Power Pack. I feel really good about that. Thunderbird has never looked so cute. <gasps> good! He should get to look cute. This issue opens with something we haven't seen in quite a while. Hey, it's the X-Men playing baseball. You know, like they do. Actually, less often than we assume they do. But still, it's very wholesome and sweet. Look, they do it occasionally. I don't think they've ever finished a game, though. Oh no, and this is no exception. But first, let's talk about how it starts, because the opening page of this issue is delightful, and I suspect, as a Cyclops fan, you have feelings about it as well. There's this great picture of Cyclops as the pitcher. He's in this sleeveless hoodie, these baggy jeans, a baseball cap, his usual shades, like, pretty impressive stubble and very well-detailed arm hair. Like, damn, Joe Matarera, that is an attractive Scott Summers. I'm kind of weirded out by how big he is in this era. I mean, it's Joe Matarera. All the men are pretty giant. Okay, fair point. Jean agrees with uh, my take on Cyclops here. I love how she's just blatantly, delightedly checking out his butt as she talks about the fact that she's checking out his butt. You know, follow your heart. <laughs> to Cyclops's butt. Speaking of Chuck Tinkle novels. <laughs> so this game isn't just the X-Men, it's the X-Men and Generation X playing baseball together, and I dig that. I really miss the old days when the X-Men and the New Mutants would hang out and do stuff together. Like, it had this wonderful generational school-slash-family feel, and it's nice to see that again. I also like that we see Cannonball and Jubilee as the two outliers in this, as the, the youngest of the X-Men and the kind of most experienced of Generation X. And of course they're giving each other shit because they're them. It's delightful. Yeah, it's, it's just kind of pleasant and charming, and it, it ends, of course, ridiculously. Bishop tries to steal home, and it ends with a big pile of tangled, bruised X-Men all wrapped up in skin, with an untouched Monet sitting on top, holding the ball, and being somewhat baffled as to how on earth this can actually be America's national pastime. You know, I think the last time we saw the X-Men play a sports game together was Uncanny number 309, that awesome autumnal issue right before Scott and Jean's wedding, and that game also ended with a big pile of bruised X-Men. I mean, again, they never actually finish a game, although I would disagree with Monet on this point and say America's national pastime is probably actually bigotry. Hooray! Baseball's more fun. Well, well, I think baseball's more fun, and I don't even, I don't even like baseball. Oh, I like baseball. Legit. I played on a Little League team when I was young because I thought I was supposed to because I was a little boy. I never actually learned how it worked. I think I was a liability. Aw, oh, kiddo, I'm imagining you as Calvin in, like, the deep left field where you're so far out that you end up just wandering away. I mean, kind of that, yeah. <laughs> so my, my baby cousins, I say as if they're not all around in their 30s now. But it's weird. They're also all taller than me, which is really unfair. But... Um, they all played played baseball pretty seriously, and I don't care a lot about baseball as a sport beyond the Cubs, but I do care deeply about my baby cousins, and so I went to their games and got really enthusiastic about it, and I do understand the basic workings of baseball as a result of this. Excellent. I feel like that's a handy thing to know. I've, I've gradually learned over the years, but um, some of the weird like situational rules still elude me. Fortunately for us, you don't actually have to know anything about baseball to follow this scene, because honestly, the X-Men don't either. Pretty much. And I love that Wolverine and Storm, after the game, have a conversation just reminiscing about when times used to be more like this. Wolverine says, Laughing, Aurora. 
Used to happen more than it does now. You, me, the Ruski and the Elf. Those were good times. True, it is nice to see us all smiling again. Even if it is just for today. When did it happen, Ro? When life starts slamming us so hard that we forgot how to laugh? Goddess only knows, old friend. It actually kind of reminds me of Beast and Jean talking about the old days in the annual we just covered. What it reminds me of most, actually, is the con conversation that Beast and Iceman have before they actually go out and teach Matoxa the Lava Man the true meaning of Christmas. You know, I'm surprised we don't reference that issue more. I'm surprised more people don't reference that no, issue No, I'm not more. joking. Like, at one point, one of them is asking, you know, when did life become so unremittingly bleak? Oh. I, that, that wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't being a smartass. Like, it legitimately reminds me of that conversation. I always forget that that was a real issue that somebody yeah. returned to Metaxo with. You say somebody, like, we don't all know that it was Kurt Busiek. Well done, Kurt. We love you. And we love Metaxo the Lava Man. Anyway, at this point, Colossus, speak of the Russian devil, teleports in with an unconscious Callisto. And I should point out, he's wearing his yellow and red X-Men outfit. I guess he got tired of wearing purple bathrobes out in space. But this time, his, he's got this shoulder armor attached that is just goddamn gigantic. Like, this is a guy who, in his metal form, probably already has to turn sideways to get through doors. And now he has to, like, I don't know, do it twice. He ends up still sideways, but it takes more effort. He has to sort of bend dimensions maybe maybe he's like a x-man hound of tindalos anyway colossus explains where he's been which as we saw at the end of the fall of avalon story was space and then antarctica where he met up with callisto she needs ha a hand because although it's never elucidated why she's unconscious injured somehow messed up and the x-men are the only ones that he knows to turn to now he is not back to join the team and he's very clear about that Oh, it's heartbreaking. Like, Storm is so excited to see him and calls him little brother, and he is just cold. He is just clearly dead inside. It's it's so sad, because the dynamic they used to have, you know, in the days that Logan was just talking about? Oh. Honestly, after the first, you know, five-sixths of 2020, I can't blame him. <laughs> there is that. Well, Callisto wakes up from her unexplained unconsciousness to warn the X-Men about Jean Nation, who they kind of already knew about, having fought them in two separate team configurations. Oh, but they didn't know the full scope of Jean Nation's villainy. The first thing we learned from Callisto is that Mikhail Rasputin, the guy that took them to the other world, he didn't make it there. Or something. She That's doesn't really go into details. That's a lie. The second thing we learn is that Jean Nation is, in fact, the second generation who entirely came of age there. The older Morlocks are, you know, significantly older. These are the kids who were kids and who grew up hearing stories of what happened with the Morlocks to get them there. And their leader is someone named Marrow. And to make her point, Callisto just randomly shoots an energy blast at the X-Men's gigantic wall-sized TV. It's like Gambit ripping out spaceship circuitry to make a point in Gambit and the Externals. Severe property damage as an exclamation point? That is not a good idea! But so much less likely to cause mass death. I don't know, if you blow up a TV that big, probably somebody's gonna get electrocuted, or at least knocked over. No. 
More relevantly, in exactly 45 minutes from when Callisto woke up, it's going to be the anniversary of the Mutant Massacre, the event that saw most of the Morlocks killed by the Marauders. Gene Nation is planning to strike then, killing one human for every Morlock who died. Which, hey, wait a minute. Okay, first of all, Gene Nation said explicitly before that they were going to kill 100 humans for every dead Morlock, and second... Humans didn't kill the Morlocks, that was the Marauders who were mutants. Freaking millennials, if they spent less time eating avocado toast and more time reading old comics, they would have a better plan. You know, you can do both of those things at once, but also I kind of get it, because while they were killed directly by other mutants, they were also still basically killed by systemic discrimination, which was human, human bias and human-based. Okay, so Gene Nation kind of has a point, yeah. but I still don't like their plan. No. Meanwhile, not coincidentally... Gambit worries about the X-Men figuring out his secrets, because remember, at the end of the world, he and Rogue kissed, thinking the world was ending, so why not, and she absorbed a lot of his memories. Could those perhaps be related to the topic that the heroes were just discussing, the Marauders? Is that why Betsy and Warren are, too, are, are worried about going in too fast? Maybe, maybe, yeah. But anyway, Gambit worries about this just in time for, in fact, Rogue to randomly call the mansion to see how Gambit is doing. So it's time for him, in a different X-Men comic, to track her down because he's freaking out, he's wondering what she knows. And it's time for Sinister, who hears about this, to wonder if his plans are bearing fruit. Is that a euphemism? Ask Shinobi Shaw. I will not. So, the X-Men go with Callisto, she uses her weird technology that was developed in the time-accelerated other dimension to teleport them into a housing project building, which leads underground. This apparently is where Gene Nation is going to begin their murder. Weird place for it, but okay. So we've got Team A, who is, is actually on the ground. That's, that's Storm, Colossus, Wolverine, and of course Callisto. We've also got a Team B as backup in the Blackbird, and they don't matter at all. Yeah, yeah, you'd think they would, like, Archangel's in there, and he's thinking about the mutant massacre, because remember, that's where his wings were destroyed, which led to him basically dying, which led to him becoming Apocalypse's Horseman of Death, but no, we don't go anywhere with that. Honestly, this issue is basically an homage to Giant Size X-Men number one, the issue whose anniversary it is, because it focuses on the team we got to know in that issue, or, uh, well, at least about half of them. Well, or at least three of them. I think this might actually technically be less than half. Well, it's about Wolverine, Storm, and Colossus, who I think are some of the more memorable characters from Giant Size, but, like, Banshee was at the school playing baseball. He could come. Cyclops is up there in a jet. He could come. Nightcrawler is, okay, Nightcrawler's off on Excalibur. I guess it would feel a little too hackneyed if Colossus showed up out of nowhere and Nightcrawler showed up out of nowhere. Can we assume that Sunfire has joined and quit the team between panels? Probably, yeah, and Thunderbird's still dead, so there's that. Yeah, there are definitely only three of those team members on the ground here. I, I question whether that officially counts as an homage at that point. I don't know, but that does seem to be the intent. I mean, between that and focusing on very much a classic X-Men event, the Mutant Massacre? Fair enough. So, the team on the ground is having trouble, and the trouble starts internally, and with Callisto giving Storm some well-deserved shit about how she took over the Morlocks and then just abandoned them. I mean, pretty much. Colossus does defend Storm, saying that blaming Storm for that makes as much sense as him blaming Xavier for the death of Liana and the rest of his family, which, I mean, he kind of did blame Xavier for that. Also, you can blame Xavier for a lot and be reasonably confident that you're accurate. 
Well, as is often the case, the X-Men and their argument are saved by the bell, by which I mean a human corpse nailed to the wall with bicycle parts. With a message painted around it, because Marrow is nothing if not consistent, and I appreciate that in her message she specifies X-Men and women. I mean, you know, she may be awful, but as we know, millennials do tend to have more progressive attitudes toward gender. Okay, I realize that technically, Mara would be a member of Generation X, the generation, not the team, and I myself am a millennial, as are UJ, depending on how you look at it, but the jokes are just so easy. Well, we're Oregon Trail generation, which is either the oldest millennials or the youngest Generation X, so we're, we're sort of in a liminal space relative to here, which I'm going to say means that we can make fun of both. Hooray. I do want to call out Joe Matarera's art in general in this issue. Like, we've talked a lot in previous episodes just about what a fun version of X-Men he draws. And even in this panel, where there is a human corpse in, like, a bicycle outfit nailed to a wall with bicycle parts, it's gory as shit, but it's still somehow a really fun panel. It's a human corpse, but it's a fun human corpse. <laughs> exactly! Well, the baddies, presumably recovering from their art project, are waiting. We have Marrow. We have Vessel, who we saw before. That was the sort of Swamp Thing-looking guy. We have Dr. Bonehatton. Nope. I mean, Sack. And we have a new guy named Reverb, who looks kind of like Sleepwalker from the old Marvel trading card I have. He's like a green dude in a purple cloak. I don't actually know much about Sleepwalker, but god, I love those trading cards. After a brief ambush by Dr. B Sack... The leader of Gene Nation confronts both former leaders of the Morlocks. Marrow confronts Callisto and Storm. And Marrow very much remembers Storm from that first fight that Storm and Callisto had down in the alley way back in the day. You were beautiful. Callisto was ugly. You were the bright lady. She was dark. We... I had such hopes... Hope that you would lead us from the tunnels into the light. Child, Xavier and I offered a place. A place where? Upworld? With the humans? Where we would be feared and hunted and hated? As leader, you owed us more than that. That you were too weak to fight for a city free of Upworlders. And since you could not, would not, did not... We decided to come back and do it ourselves. You get raised in a shitty dimension after having horribly unjust things done to you? Like, I could see that leading to that attitude. The murder's a bit much, but I kind of get where Marrow's coming from. Are we officially just calling this, this the shitty dimension now? I'm sure it has a name, but I don't remember it. Anyway, point being, Marrow has Dozens of captured humans uh, from a subway car that passed nearby, it sounds like, chained up with bombs attached to them. And then she rips open her chest a little bit to show Storm that she's got a detonator attached to her own heart. If Marrow's heart keeps beating, the detonator will activate and blow up all the humans. What, what the hell's going on with this plan? Also, Marrow's whole basis for this plan is, yeah, you don't have the guts to do this. And look, kid... The last time you saw this lady, she literally stabbed someone in the heart. Like, that's her signature move as far as the Morlocks are concerned. Don't get me wrong, I'm all in favor of overly complicated villain plans, but this one is just straight up nonsensical. Yeah, this is goofy as hell. Well, it's duel time, so Mero tosses some bone knives over to Storm, and Storm draws first blood and licks the knife, which I can't Ew. imagine is- Yeah, that thing was just in Mero's flesh, I mean, jeez. 
Wolverine also pops his bone claws a lot in this story, and his healing factor is kind of burnt out, and all I can think is he is going to get the grossest sewer infections. Oh, man. Yeah, everything about this is gross. Like, everyone needs to just get scrubbed down after this. And after lots of stabbing Storm, Mero talks again about how Storm let her down. You held my life in your hands, bright lady, and you destroyed it. And in a bit of way too on the nose, or should I say on the heart, humor, Storm then literally rips out Marrow's heart, holds it in her hands, and squishes it. And that's the the end of the fight. Okay, so there's a lot going on here, but first, like, she literally just reaches into Marrow's chest. That's implausible. Second, I want to take this moment to note that the sound effect of squashing a heart is apparently squick. I'm kind of squicked out by it. Yeah, no, same. I I feel like that's a solid choice. So, Mara will eventually be fine, just like Callisto before her. But I have a question, Jay. So, this clearly is an homage to old classic X-Men stuff, specifically to the story where Storm and Callisto fight for leadership of the Morlocks. How's this work for you? It doesn't. It really doesn't. I mean, that fight works because there's not precedent for it. Because it's Storm just being like, yeah, I will totally stab someone through the heart. And in this one, we know that. And so there's not really any question as to how it's going to end. Yeah, like, I get where this issue is going. I mean, talking about those old days, the classic X-Men era, like, okay, that's a reasonable thing to do uh, with a big anniversary issue, focusing on those characters that have such a bond from way back in the day. But... I don't know, like, the elements work, and then there's this part, and this is the last part, so it's kind of what you remember when you finish the issue. It's the taste that's left in your mouth. And it's just, it's simultaneously anticlimactic and over-the-top. Yeah. Uh, So perhaps it's for the best that continuity just says, Marrow, oh yeah, check out the reason she survived. If nothing else, this story gives us that. Yeah, spoiler, she's got another one. Handy, right? So that's that. We have dipped our toes back into the limpid pool that is X-Men. For all all of its flaws, I will give this story one thing. Yeah? I feel like it really kind of got to the heart of the matter. Nice. Anyway, we've got listeners, and they've got questions. All right. This D82 asks on Tumblr, What's the best horror-related X-Men comic besides Curse of the Mutants? And, and this, this D82, I think that is a really unfair qualifier because this means that I can't say the story with a vampire sperm whale, and I resent you for that. That was a Cy Spurrier issue, wasn't it? Yes, and Gabriel Hernandez-Walta, and it's beautiful and I love it. Hmm. Beautiful. I would have to say the Magic miniseries, uh, the origin of Liana Rasputin. We have all the trappings of good horror in it. We have demons and torture and hell dimensions. We have friends dying or being corrupted in a way that's not just an illusion. Like, the X-Men that are in this story are just X-Men from an alternate timeline, and they are getting turned into horrible demons, and they are getting slaughtered. Like, the image of Nightcrawler being killed by Lyanna, the image of Colossus torn open, like, those have stuck with me. But most importantly, that story has stakes. It's not just about whether Ilyana, who starts out as this innocent little girl, will escape Limbo. It's about whether she's going to escape with her humanity intact. You know what other story has stakes? Curse of the Mutants. Because it's about vampires. (laughs) Yeah. 
But honestly, the Magic miniseries, in addition to just being a stellar miniseries, it's so good and so harsh. Like a lot of the best horror, it works a fantastical set of events and images as a metaphor for real-life trauma. And that's effective when you do that in horror. And this miniseries, I think, does it very well and a lot more tastefully than it could have. My answer is Inferno. And I realize that's a very, very broad space to draw from. But I'm going to say specifically the uncanny X-Men issues at the edge of Inferno, and specifically the issue where Alex and Madeline go to the Rainbow Room. Oh, yeah, and those people go into the elevator, and then when it opens back up, it's just blood and bones. And Madeline is changing, and Alex doesn't quite catch on. That nightmare logic is so effective. Yeah. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, With a lot of other companies doing homages, knockoffs, inspired by an accidental by timing X-Men-like titles, I was wondering if you have a favorite X-Men-like title. When I say the above descriptions, I'm talking about a team of misfits, possibly hated by humanity, that come together as a team, not individuals, to be heroes. Titles like Doom Patrol, the one with a similar timing to the first few X-Men books, Dark Horse's Umbrella Academy, and Valiant's Harbinger, for instance. So, my answer is, is a duology. It's a series of novels that was literally rec- recommended to me as, and I quote, the best X-Men novels, and I think that actually sells them short. So they are a deliberate homage to and, and, and a series that found, finds a lot of its foundations in, in the X-Men, and that is Bob Kroll's Resident Duology. Like I said, they're very, very open and direct homages to the X-Men, but Kroll takes that common foundation and he builds it in a strikingly different and I think in many ways more interesting direction, and he does that with all of the intersectional diversity that the original has historically lacked, and I just I cannot recommend these highly enough. I read the first one accidentally about a week before the second one came out and i don't think i've i've been more absorbed in a set of books in in a very 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 long time they're just phenomenally good and if you're an x-men fan who likes the premise and wishes that it had gone in more daring and different directions i i cannot recommend these highly enough i mean in general they're terrific books so even if you're not an x-men fan you'll like them but you're also probably not listening to this podcast so you know you do you i really have to read those those sound great so i was thinking across media as well and man i have such a long list of movies that listeners and friends have recommended to me as scratching the x-men itch uh, the ones i remember specifically are the darkest minds fast color and freaks not the one of us one of us one that the more recent one I don't really watch movies very often, but um, I've heard those are all great and very X-Men-like. It's not a movie, but has anyone recommended you My Hero Academia? A number of people, actually. It's definitely got some of that X-Kids feel. Nice. Well, that's exciting. Um, Sort of also in the anime-ish direction, I have a weird answer. Final Fantasy XIII. Now, FF13 is a very divisive game. I personally love it, but I think it really works. It's about a group of people with nothing in common who unite after being exposed to enormous power and branded enemies of the world, and then they have to decide whether to save a world that hates and fears them while learning to become found family with one another because they're so isolated from the rest of the world. Like, yeah, it's actually very, very X-Men. It's also science fiction fantasy nonsense, which is to say it's very, very X-Men. Valid. Entirely valid. I'm going to add to the anime list and say that Beastar also has some some pretty X-Men components and feel to it. 
I've seen a lot of fan art from that randomly appear in places I would not expect to see fan art, and that's all I know about it. It's really weird and good. I I can rec- I recommend it. Okay. As far as comics go, and actually as far as Marvel comics go, I feel like most people who like X-Men, especially if you like New Mutants or Generation X or X-Force, runaways. All the way. With those kids, it's more their ties to their supervillain parents rather than their own traits that complicate their relationship with society, but it checks all the boxes really well, and it does found family better than almost anything I've ever read. It's so good. I hope the comic comes back. It hasn't been around since the hiatus, and that makes me sad. And I'm also sad the TV show ended because it was really good. I'll add on the comics front, and this is this is a series and part of a world that I have a complicated and fraught relationship with. Um, but I think BPRD has a lot of the same ensemble dynamics that that really drew me to X Men. The Hellboy spinoff? Yeah, I would absolutely agree, and it is a really, really good comic. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Tell us what you have to say, angry Clermontian narrator. You thought yourself so clever, Thomas. You imagined that you were at the top of your game, on top of the world. You were so wrapped up in your own so-called victory that you never even realized that you weren't on top at all. That Jack Weaver was hovering, as always, slightly overhead. Now, I had guesses as to to where this was going to go from here, and this defied all of them, so the mic, to my astonishment, passes from here to Sexy Shinobi Shaw. Archangel and Psylocke's first date was at my sexy Hellfire Club party. And did I detect that first real spark between them when we all had sex in my sex basement? I'm definitely sure yelling and getting stabbed with a psychic knife is sex. I mean, one form of sex, which I am an expert at. Shinobi Shaw, sexual matchmaker. I like the sound of that. Think of all the sexy connection I could bring into the world, and all the opportunities for people to tell me what sex is. I mean, what it is to them. I already know all about all the recipes of naked grown-up time and special hugs. Matt Jones, Mathiel, thank you both so much for coming to my home. Do Do you see what I did there? Did, did I do it right? Ah, good. Of course. I think you'll both get along very well. But first, how about a sexy little icebreaker game? It'll help us all get to know each other better. Every curve, every angle, every trapezoid. Now, Mathiel... Please, yell at me about our shared and troubling childhood until I cry. I know we just met, but you can fantasize. And Matt, stab me with the focused totality of your psychic might. What do you mean, is that a euphemism? (laughs) Ah, my friends, everything is a euphemism. And with that, 
Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded sexily in New Fairfield, Connecticut, in exile from Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by the ever-sexy Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's sexy compositions at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes euphemistically come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, at explainthexmen.com, and in Shinobi Shaw's Sex Basement. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions for every episode, which probably include actual sex. Our show is 100% sexy listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air sexy and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, I'll be out of the studio, but Jay will be interviewing Bob Prohl about the Resonant duology and what it means to write past the X-Men. Okay, let us do this thing. God, we have so many episodes. This is It's this too is many. It's really moment. upsetting. I have written, at this point, over 300 cold opens, and... It's upsetting that there are still topics for them. And here's one of them. That should be enough. <laughs> right? Okay. All right. Ready? Mm-hmm.